president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, the author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note that I'm a registered representative of Foreside Fund Services, and Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer of any investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We're going to talk tax policy today. This was the week uh, that we saw the outline from from the Trump administration. What is their tax plans? Professor Siegel has been calling for. We want Trump to focus on taxes. This week, we got the focus on taxes. Uh, and our show today really has two uh, really special guests who, who've been part of tax policy at the highest levels. Our first guest, Brian Reardon, was a special assistant to President George W. Bush on economic policy where he worked on principal tax aid at the President's National Economic Council. So he really has an interesting take. Uh, he's part of the American Made Coalition here. Uh, and we'll talk about him, about his his thoughts on where we need to go with tax policy. Professor, I know you're going to have some interesting comments there. Uh, and the second part of the show, we're going to be talking with Gordon Gray, who's the Director of Fiscal Policy at the American Action Forum. Really going to be a great discussion. Uh, but Professor, before we, we turn to our guest, maybe just a, a quick thought on the markets. I saw some yeah. headlines from CNBC with you. Goldilocks. Goldilocks economy, yeah. I mean, um, you know, we just got GDP actually slightly better than some of the forecasts is expected 0.7, but you know, given the ter- terrible quarter, the, the earnings are really coming out quite well, and I think part of it is Europe and the rest of the world um, uh, doing better. Uh, we're going to get much better GDP this quarter, as we know. We're still not out of the two percent rut yet. Um, of course, we we hope to do that. Um, the the most important thing that I think is spurring the markets. Uh, is is the forward guidance. For the first time in in years, uh, the forward guidance is even maintained or being raised. Uh, And I voiced many times before how, uh, you know, earnings in January for the year are one thing, and then when we come to December, they're $10, $15 less on the S&P 500. We're talking about significant declines from what had been expected. Now, we all know that they declined, that there's two rosy scenarios, but these declines have been massive. For the last few weeks, I've noticed the maintenance of the uh, full year 2017 earnings, which I think is, is if, if realized, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about $130. I mean, that's an 18 PE ratio, which is really quite reasonable. Nothing as scary as, uh, you know, 21, 22 is if you look at the BAST earnings. So I think that that is it, and then and, and then you know, underlying all of this, uh, you know, interest rates. Who, who would have believed the ten-year under two thirty uh, at this time, almost May uh, into uh, the uh, the year? Uh, you know, the way it raced up to two sixty. People, uh, you know, I, I said three at the end of the year, and now I'm I'm I'm, I'm not even sure we're going to get there. 
uh, to three uh, at the uh, at the end of the year. Uh, I think that that the low interest rates and the great earnings, the great earnings guidance, the rest of the world beginning to take off and take off those earnings are you know these are perfect environment for for stocks. Now, that 18 times multiple for this year's earnings, do you think that's starting to factor in any tax rates? I mean, we don't... It, and those do not factor in. That do not, right? So do then... not. That's a, that'll be a bonus. And you get a lot... First of all, we don't, know what it, we don't know what it is. And yeah, we should definitely engage in some discussion on, on the tax policy over here. I mean, I've seen estimates of 7 and 8. I've seen estimates 12, 13, 14. This is on the S&P. Uh, and since the S&P earnings are a little over 100, you're, 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 you're talking about that in percentage. So, I mean, the devil is in the details, and, you know, there's no details at all because there's no bill yet. Uh, there's um, only uh, some... Um, Bullet points. Yeah, I mean, there's talking points at this particular uh, juncture. Um, what so do you have any any thoughts on the bullet points that you saw bullet points you didn't see um... uh, you know not uh, pretty much almost exactly like I expected um, you know eliminating the tax uh, is is a kind of a penalty to the blue states that don't vote for him or the cities that don't vote for him that have taxes uh, will get you we won't let you deduct on the federal uh, you know that's the only revenue gainer mm. uh, the other things. Are pretty much he did the homeowners uh he did maintain uh charitable and the homeowners you know are basically it but but also property taxes i mean so were uh, it was understood and everyone almost anyone owns and people who own stocks almost all own their own homes um you know they property taxes won't be deductible that's the only thing that sort of gains revenue everything else really doesn't gain revenue uh loses a tremendous amount of revenue. And of course, uh, you you get uh, uh, people like uh, you know Larry Kudlow and others saying, if we can break out of the two percent mold into the three percent mold, uh, it uh, that that uh, deficit will be offset so that we can um, uh, maintain the ratio of debt to GDP and not have it uh, rise as fearfully as it as it would otherwise. I I have uh, I have doubts about that, but. Um, uh, strong doubts about that. I think they're ignoring uh, the effect on interest rates that it's going on, on the national debt. And actually, I'm thinking of writing an article on that. But um, uh, it, it, it really did not differ. And, and one of the big disappointments, I mean, he didn't seem to put to, uh, the corporate plan was, it was very vague. Uh, and he didn't even put to rest whether we're going to have a border adjustment tax like that's still to be decided that's a major major change uh of 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 huge magnitude and that wasn't even mentioned well that's so, a, that's uh, a good know, uh, segue to our first guest because yeah. uh Brian Reardon he's the founder of Reardon Consulting advisor to the American Made Coalition now this is a group that is you know about the American Made uh brand here and I think one of their big policies it does talk about the border adjustment tax Brian welcome to our program well, thank you for having me. Maybe, uh, let me just give you a little bit more introduction. So working with George W. Bush uh, as a special assistant to the National Economic Council, you worked with him on the 2003 Jobs and Growth Tax Relief Act and the Medicare Modernization Act. Uh, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about what got you to, to work with the American Made Coalition and maybe describe for the group um, what, what they're, they're focused on. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, as, as you indicated in the lead-in, 
I've, I've been somebody who's liked the idea of border adjusting our business tax code for a long time. And what the, the House folks in their blueprint, the Speaker Paul Ryan and the Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Kevin Brady, have put forward is a comprehensive plan to effectively replace the corporate income tax with something that would be called a cash flow tax. It reduces rates, it gives businesses immediate expensing, it moves us to territorial, and in the process it puts us in a position where we can level the tax burden between products that are made here in the United States and products that are imported from other countries. So we're no longer going to have what Kevin Brady calls this made in America tax. And it does that through a border adjustment. And it's unique to what we're talking about here. It's not unique in the world in the sense that just about every country that we trade with has a border adjusted tax. And the way it works is real simple, that if you import something into the United States, you're going to be charged or assessed the same tax that is charged to something that's produced here by American workers. And if you export something from the United States to another country, you're not going to have to pay the tax at all. Um, the idea is we're going to shift our tax code from focusing on taxing production to taxing the destination of goods, the consumption of goods and services. It's really a radical change, as Dr. Siegel indicates, but I think it's a radical change that literally takes our tax code from one of the worst right now, where we've got a tax code that actively encourages businesses to shift jobs and production and headquarters overseas to one where you're going to see foreign companies starting to move their headquarters here because it's such a good environment for investment and job creation. This is one of the more interesting things because that that's so consistent with everything Trump says that he wants people to come to America and then you have him talking about the weak dollar or that you have too strong of a dollar and that one of the worries people have, and I know Professor Siegel shares this view, too strong of a dollar can be a... Can... Uh, what, what my objection... As you know, the, the the theorists and they're right in pure theory models of trade. The dollar will go up by the amount of the adjustment tax, um, and it will have no effect on the consumers. I fear in the real world, where capital flows are massive, um, that you will not get that full adjustment, and that would result in a price increase on uh, the imported goods. Um, I think it was a great idea if we were stuck at at 35%, but now that we're going down, and I, you know, I I don't think anyone believes we're going to get to 15. I, I mean, 20 would be a great thing to go to um, um, uh, if we get immediate expensing rather than uh, you know the depreciation um, that we can approximate uh, a lot of the good features of. Uh, of, of, of the of the taxation structure uh... it's just that a dollar movement let's say of fifteen or twenty percent would be uh, um, uh... if it happened and extremely disruptive i think uh... in the world economy where so much debt is denominated in dollars um, uh... particularly in emerging markets the burden would become extreme uh... i i think that's fire to play with um, Although, Professor, the last two years we've seen a 15 to 20% move in the dollar. Right. And it that, hasn't, that, we, we haven't had true. a major crisis up, up and yet. Down. But those are normal capital flows, and we're talking on top of that. Yeah. We're talking on a strong dollar now, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we're going to add to you know, what, what, had, what had happened. And, and by the way, that, that, that burden was a, a, a problem. You know, the, the swoon of of the emerging markets that occurred in February of last year 
uh, was not just uh, was was a lot of it due to the to the strength of the dollar and the and the collapse of the commodity prices, um, uh, and I've been oil going to twenty six, twenty seven dollars. Um, fortunately, those have stabilized uh, at at the current rate. So my my feeling is yes, we need re- we definitely need reform, but I think a lot of it can be accomplished by lowering the rate, immediate expensing. And of course, none of none of we haven't we haven't talked about. Um, I know the border adjustment tax because we have a trade deficit uh, does raise money, and that's the big attraction to so many of the Republicans. Oh, this is how we pay for it. Um, and uh, I mean, otherwise, I, I you know, it, 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 it wouldn't even be on the table uh, if we had a trade. If we had a trade balance, then you're not going to collect anything from it, um, and it wouldn't be on the table. So, uh, in my opinion, it's on the table. Because we have a trade deficit, although it has been reduced, and if we keep on producing oil, we don't know how much it might be reduced. Uh, but uh, I think that's the big thing. I also think that you know when we, we talked, to, we we had a session with Alan Auerbach. Uh, he wrote a paper with Eakins, uh, very highly respected economist. I respect him a lot. And um, when they wrote that, we were stuck with 35 percent. And in that case, if you would ask me, border adjustment tax versus 35 percent, I'd be much more on the borderline then. Um, but with the Republicans pledging, you know, sharply lower rates, I, I, my feeling is is that uh, that need is 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 mitigated substantially. Let me, let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Brian Reardon of Reardon Consulting. He's an advisor to the American Made Coalition, which is a group uh, that's behind the border adjustment tax. Brian, maybe just sort of react to what you just heard there. I mean, is it what do you th- a lot of people have taken this view and the the retailers view that this is going to be a big, you know, cost push to consumers. Um, do you think it's dead? I mean, a lot of people are saying it's a dead dead issue today. No, I, I don't think it's dead. Um, yeah, a lot, lots to react to there. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, we're going to have to come up with something that moves the tax code in a positive direction. And as Professor Siegel indicates, you know, that includes moving to territorial, it includes lowering the rates, et cetera. We, you know, the, the, the current status quo is, is simply not sustainable. And part of making it a successful tax reform is making it permanent which means that we have to get, you know, sort of do tax reform that creates growth, get some revenue feedback, and that on a dynamic or, you know, taking growth into account doesn't increase the deficit dramatically so that we can make this policy permanent. If we have large deficits coming from the, from the policy, then we're going to have to sunset it. And I think most people agree that per- permanent tax measures are much more conducive to economic growth than temporary ones are. They get better behavioral response to it. So in response to some of the, some of the comments that were made, a couple things. One, there, there are three reasons why the border adjustment is part of the plan. Um, as the professor indicates, one of them is that because we run trade deficits right now, it does raise some money, and it helps us get those rates down to where they are. Um, in the blueprint, the rate's at about 20%. If you don't have the border adjustment in there, the rate would have to be closer to 30. So it much, you know, 20%, it's internationally competitive. 30%, we're still at the high end of what the rest of the world charges. Um, two, 
when you move to territorial, right, there's still an incentive for companies that are based here, or multinational companies, to shift their income, shift their intellectual property overseas, because what they can do is, you know, pretend that money made here in the United States was actually made in low-tax Ireland, and then bring the money back under the territorial rules with little or no residual tax effect at all. You need some sort of enforcement of that. And absent the border adjustment, you'd have to have all sorts of very difficult and inelegant and not really effective rules to prevent that from happening. Under a border adjustment, it doesn't matter where you hide your IP or where you shift your income or whether you move your production to Asia or someplace else. Because at the end of the day, if you're trying to sell products to Americans, you're going to have to pay that tax anyway. So it's a really elegant way of moving to a territorial system where I think most people agree. And then finally, it creates this backstop that, you know, at the end of the day, we're sure that if you're making products here in America and you're investing here in America and you're paying the, the, whatever the tax is, that products imported in the country are going to face that same tax. We don't have that situation right now. So those are the reasons that the border thing's in there. And it really is the glue that holds together the whole policy. One other thing that I want to mention is, you know, there's been a lot of pushback about the currency adjustments, et cetera. And, you know, I think that there are legitimate concerns that a policy that's going to result in the appreciation of a dollar by 20 or 25 percent is going to have some secondary effects that we want to avoid. And I think, the, you know, Kevin Brady and the Speaker are aware of that, and their plan is to put in transition issues that give people time so that if they're on long-term contracts or if they have dollar-denominated debt, they can take actions to mitigate the effect of the appreciating dollar. But one, we have seen the dollar appreciate significantly, much more than what we're talking about here in the past. It did in the 1980s, which was a good decade for America. It did in the 1990s, which was a good decade for America. So just the fact that the dollar appreciates significantly does not immediately mean that bad things are going to happen. And second, you know, the, there is this notion that, well, you know, the dollar is the reserve currency for the world, right? Or that there's so big cash flows, you know, monetary flows, that trade effects are not going to cause the dollar to change that much. Um, I'm not sure that that's exactly accurate. I mean, yes, there are lots of dollars moving out of America and into America every single day. But what changes, what drives the currency, the value of the currency, is the net capital outflow. It's the delta. It's the difference between the dollars coming in and the dollars going out. And that net capital outflow is equal to net exports. So if you have a policy like the border adjustment, which is going to make exports, our exports, more attractive because they're tax-free, and they're going to make imports less attractive because they have this tax being imposed on them, then the net effect is you're going to drive up the value of the dollar. That's the way the math works, and that's an accounting identity. That is not an economic concept, so it has to happen. Now, it might happen slower than some people think. It might happen faster. It might not happen fully because of other extraneous issues, but the border adjustment issue itself the economics and the accounting are pretty clear. You're going to see an appreciation of the dollar, and it is going to affect to protect consumers in those few industries that are import-heavy, like retail and like autos. All those other industries, let's be clear, all those other industries, right? So I'm looking at a chart from uh, Goldman Sachs here. They have 32 industries that get a tax cut under the border adjustment, even if you have no currency adjustment. There are just seven that are import-heavy that would see a tax increase under the border adjustment, 
if no if there's no currency adjustment let's be clear if there's no currency adjustment so the net effect economy wide is not going to be to drive up prices it's going to be to give tax cuts to families and businesses so that they'll be better off at the end of the day Brian a lot a lot in there um, and professor I may ask you to weigh in here a second but um, so do you think in the outline that we saw from from Trump that the just the broad reference to a territorial system is that you know the broad enough that he he's you know that we're that reason why it's not dead is that's just where they're going to go with this territorial system. This is part of the territorial drive. Or, I mean, how do you think they get the vote? Do the Republicans, um, you know, they, you've got the the Walmart groups out there going against it. Is are they going to come around and vote for it, or is it going to have to go to the other side? How do you think they get the votes for it? Uh, yeah. So, so I think there's two different questions there. One, um, you know, just stepping back from the question of border adjustment, I thought that. The fact that uh, the president included territorial in his plan on Wednesday was a significant step in the right direction. He had not embraced a territorial system during the campaign, if you recall. So effectively, you know, in my mind, you know, sort of the simple math is now you have both the White House and the Congress on the same page in terms of we want a tax code that lowers rates, that, you know, reduces uh, depreciation schedules or moves to expensing and moves to a territorial system. So in the broad strokes, they're all on the same page. So I thought that that was very much a positive. I think the challenge for getting votes is a longer-term challenge. My expectation is that we're not going to be seeing these bills on the floor of the House or the Senate until the summer at the earliest. And that gives us time to educate folks. There's a lot of misunderstanding about exactly what the blueprint includes, in, including this border adjustment. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, the best thing that we have in our corner is that there's no plan B. That is, if the border adjustment is not part of the plan, then they're going to have to raise rates. They're going to have to move away from expensing. They're going to have to figure out what else to do on territorial. They're going to have to dramatically scale back the plan. And that's not necessarily going to get to us to the place that we need, which is a tax code that's competitive and stops driving jobs and investment overseas. Professor. Oh, wow. There's lots of... Uh-huh. That's just fun. First of all, clearly, if we lower it, I think I think Ireland is technically 12 and a half. I'm not sure. I mean, if we go to 15, I don't think there's much of an incentive. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't. I think that even at 20, the incentive becomes so much less to, to shift all of that. Um, I, I also think, uh, uh, again, I agree with you. I think there will be a, a, a currency appreciation, and as, as I mentioned. I think there's something like a hundred trillion dollars worth of debt denominated in dollars. Uh, you know, uh, huge changes for the international community in terms of that from an already strong dollar uh, position. Remember, Walt, you mentioned Reagan. We had a big surge in Reagan. All of that disappeared in a matter of 18 months. If you take a look at the graph of the dollar uh, against purchasing power period, when real rates were squeezed up. A huge amount of capital that bubble burst, and we went kind of back to purchasing uh, power. Um, now we're languished. We're we're more at at the top of it. I think I think it's extremely difficult to get votes. I mean, all you need is three Republicans to defect. Um, I already know one, um, uh, and um, you know I'm not politically connected. Now, uh, when you said there's no other way to do it, that's a question of how we're going to handle the deficit. And that's also a question of what mostly what Trump talked about uh, yesterday was the personal thing, 
really, who, how are we going to pay for this? Uh, are we going to pay for it? Um, we should also remember in terms of permanent versus temporary. Um, a, a very bad strategic decision in the Bush uh, W administration, not your, the one you served on, when they had the 10-year tax cut, uh, and then he brought in a bigger majority in the Senate and the House. There was no question that, uh, that if he wanted to make that permanent, he had the votes. Um, unfortunately, he went the other way and wanted to privatize Social Security to, you know, everyone have their own accounts. That flopped. Uh, and, uh, and then he began to lose that majority. We, we could have had that transition um, to permanence from that. So I'm not always upset with uh, the fact that you have to have the permanence right away and that you have, you know, that necessarily the temporary uh, five-year, ten-year, whatever the, the plan happens to be will go into effect. I agree with you. It, you know, we, we want something permanent, but taxes have never been permanent. Anything can change. Everything does change. Um, you know, g given whatever the geopolitical situation is, we may have to raise a lot of money for for defense and or or or, or some other critical uh, area. So, in, in a way, uh, you know, taxes are never permanent. Um, uh, although certainly stability and uh, you know, seeing it as far as the eye can see, is certainly a, a preferable one. But the real world does. Does change that a lot, and this is, these are these are huge debates. And clearly, uh, Trump stepped back, and he talked mostly about, uh, you know, you know, he hardly mentioned that. Um, I, I think uh, the battle will be, you know, can we score this without too much of a deficit? Um, I do not think the votes are there. Um, even though I think it what is it one point two trillion you might know the data on on the ten year border adjustment tax um i don't i I just don't think the votes are going to be there. It's just going to be too radical and and fearful to too many power groups uh <laughs> to make that happen and and then just to mention that as as I did before, I think a, a tremendous amount of those incentives to move and shift are reduced with a significant reduction in the corporate tax rate. Um, and, I mean, I remember talking, we, we had Alan Auerbach on our show about a couple months ago, and, and he, when he wrote it, it was 35% Democrats, you know, and Obama was in power, and, you know, he was trying to think of a way to, 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 to make it all fair. Uh, and I put that question to him, and, and he said, yeah. He said the incentives for it, are greatly reduced if we get, if we can get these other measures. Brian, now one of the things, I think he did say, uh, though, that there's still, some of these people go to Puerto Rico and pay zero tax, so that may still be an issue. Do you, you know, the one of the, the things that seems that, you know, that people are trying to get people not to do these inversions, which which was, you know, something Obama was going after, do you think there's any chance the, the Democrat side, they can pick up votes there, or is it just too bipolar here, Republican, Democrat, you're not going to get any Democrats, even though that may have been something Obama would, would have been behind from the inversion standpoint? Sure. I, I think they're going to make a good faith effort to get uh, reach across the aisle and get Democrats. Um, I do think that the environment is very difficult right now, and particularly on the inversion uh, issue. 
Um, you know, I think the, the generically speaking, Republicans are in the mode of, well, let's, you know, let's improve our tax code to reduce the incentive that companies have to shift their headquarters overseas. I think, generically speaking, Democrats are in the mode of, let's create rules that block corporations from from moving headquarters overseas, like you saw with the regulations that they issued to, to kill the Pfizer deal. Um, so I, I think they're in just completely different places. Um, I, I think Professor is exactly right. You know, if we get our rate low enough, then we will no longer have an incentive for companies to move uh, income and, and IP and, and even headquarters overseas. Um, I think the challenge is that you know, even if we succeed at getting what the blueprint's at, which is 20%, you still have many countries that are significantly lower than that and moving lower. Um, the rest of the world has been busy over the last 10 years reducing their corporate tax rates. And the way they, they've been doing it largely, and even the U.K. is a good example, they've been expanding their border-adjusted taxes, in this case the credit invoice VAT that they have in the U.K. They've been expanding that and using those revenues to reduce the, the corporate tax, and I think they're now debating going down all the way down to 17%. Um, so effectively what they're doing is shifting, you know, sort of organically their tax burden on, on business income from an income-based tax to a consumption-based tax that's border-adjusted. And what we're suggesting is, well, the rest of the world's already moving there. Maybe we should not just follow suit, but let's jump ahead of them by taking the concept of border adjusting, but um, leaving well, we behind this idea of value added tax. I mean, the, all these countries virtually do. They have a national sales tax. It's called val our value added tax. They have that mechanism in place. And oh, yeah, yeah. No, uh, no, no, whether you like exactly it or not, right. there's very few people that, that uh, and then Republicans are very wary of jumping to something like that. Right, but then that's that's where this cash flow tax that I'm talking about comes in handy because it's just like a value-added tax. The mechanics are the same, except you get a deduction for labor. So effectively, what you're doing is integrating the business tax code with the with the personal income tax code. You're not double taxing the returns on labor. The cash flow tax would simply tax the value added of investment, both foreign investment and domestic investment. It's a much more progressive way of doing it than a than a pure VAT. And because it's integrated into the individual code, it's not an add-on tax, which is what conservatives worry about. So it really is an elegant solution to all the challenges we have. As the professor makes clear, and it's obvious from you know reading the newspaper, this is a big change, and it's getting garnering a lot of attention. And there are a couple very vocal groups out there that are pushing back hard on it for a variety of reasons. But largely, when you read their arguments, they're just not valid. They assume that you know the tax increase that they are going to get is economy-wide. They assume no uh, increase in the, the value of the dollar. They assume no reaction, behavioral reaction on the part of suppliers and people who are producing things. And the net effect is that they're claiming that consumers are going to be worse off when they're not going to be worse off. Under this plan, the typical family between higher wages and lower taxes is going to be $4,600 a year better off because of this plan more jobs, higher wages, and the families get a tax break. So the idea that, you know, consumers are going to be hurt is just simply not accurate. But, the, you know, these groups are out there. I think yeah. what they're doing is effectively trying to kill this provision, thinking that they can get all the rest of the stuff that they want. And what we're trying to impart on folks is, no, if you take this provision out, as, as the professor said, you're going to lose a lot of the offsetting enforcement and revenues that make the whole plan work. Yeah, there's no question about that. Listen, I think most economists 
would say, let's have a consumption tax. Why do we tax saving an investment to begin with? I mean, um, that sort of, you know, when you design ideal goals or structures from scratch, you know, if I were to start an economy somewhere out and decide on it, you know, I I probably would would do something very, very similar to that. Um, But, uh, you know, it's... That's the most positive you've been on this yet, Professor. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, starting from that, but uh, do you know there are going to be you know, and there's a lot of distribution and other question. It is a mammoth change, um, and not a change that Trump uh, ran on. Um, he ran on simplification, um, and so the I, other I political think stuff. It I is what he, he ran is, on, though. Like, you know, basically said, I don't like this, and he's been approached by lobbyists. Uh, definitely, and, and he said he didn't. This isn't part of the plan. He's kind of Luke Lyons. Well, we can get the revenue, and and the whole thing about everything about the, the tax plan is: are they going to care about the, re, uh, the 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 lost revenue? Are they going to let the deficits balloon? And then are they just going to decide? We'll look at the capital markets and see if they like it or not. If the ten-year goes to five percent, they don't like it. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you, you basically the market is probably the only thing that'll squeeze anyone to say "ouch" about the deficit. Well, P- Professor, this has been a, a great conversation. Thanks for staying with us here, Brian Reardon, uh, Reardon Consulting, uh, former policy advisor to George Bush. Uh, thanks for your your great insights, uh, and uh, good luck in your continued advocacy here. Thank you very no, much. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. We're going to have another continued part of the conversation. We're going to have Gordon Gray of the American Action Forum continuing the conversation on tax policy. You're listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, and joining me by phone, uh, we now have Gordon Gray, He's the Director of Fiscal Policy at the American Action Forum. Uh, Gordon joins the forum after he served congressional appointments, campaign positions. He recently served as a senior policy advisor to Senator Rob Portman. Uh, he's also been a presidential campaign advisor to John McCain, uh, something that uh, my mentor, Professor Siegel, also has advised Senator McCain before. Uh, Gordon, welcome to our program. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, we had a great start of discussion on very similar issues, first part of the program. Uh, unfortunately, couldn't get the professor. Uh, had another obligation now to, to stick with us. I know he'd love talking about your, your McCain days. Um, the uh, <laughs> But you know the, this issue of tax policy is very topical this week, and you've done a lot of writing on it, uh, and and your your group with uh, with with Mr. Doug Holtzikins uh, on this. Sure. I mean, maybe you can just share you know high level what you thought of the uh, the outline we saw this week, what you're <laughs> what you're looking for, uh, and and how you think it's all going to play out. Well, f- yeah, first uh, out, outline is, is is certainly more accurate than plan. Um, uh, the the whole uh, you know one doing your uh, tax return on one page evidently caught on so much that they wanted to turn the whole tax code into a one pager. Um, I love that idea. One of, page well, <laughs> yeah. postcard. Um, uh, unfortunately, I think it's going to take a little bit more fleshing out in the details. But I think it's important uh, to recognize that what the administration did um, was useful because um, they, in you know, putting out even just the the principles is those are a departure from where we are now it's a recognition that we need to improve the tax code that right now the tax code is is a i think a a millstone around the economy and uh, we should do everything we can to improve it and so i think that's that's important for the administration to to signal the need for reform 
and then what they put out, none of it is irreconcilable with what either the House or potentially the Senate could do. So that's also important. They didn't rule anything out that is under consideration, particularly in the House right now. You know, um, the the I mean, most pointedly is they didn't spike uh, the border adjustment uh, provision. Um, that could have been an opportunity to do, to do that, and I'm certain that some of the opposition to the border adjustment provision were hoping to declare victory uh, when the administration put out a plan, and um, that didn't happen. Uh, instead, the administration included um, the desire to move to a territorial system. If you do that, then you have to do um, you know one of a few different things to ensure that basically the entire corporate tax base doesn't uh, uh, move overseas. And those options are something like, you know, really nasty, what are called base erosion provisions that nobody that when uh, Dave Camp, former chairman of the Ways and Means uh, Committee, when he uh, tried those, nobody liked them. Then there's minimum taxes, which the president put in his budget and nobody liked them. And now you have the border adjustment, which is also divided the business community. But unlike the other two, it raises money. Mm. And so I think uh, as much as opposition there is to the border adjustment provision, uh, when you look at it in combination or it compared to some of the other alternatives, it starts to look a lot better. Yeah, what's funny is I've seen a lot of commentary on you know just the outline this week, and a number of people say, yeah, no, no comments on the board adjustment. We see right. very low probability of it going happen, and a lot of the conventional thoughts is it's dead. I mean, everywhere I, I look, people say it's dead, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted uh, the two guests we had, you know, with Brian and, and then you here. Right. I mean, you guys both are in the view that it's actually something we should be doing. Um, yes. Very uh, much so. So, t- talk a little bit more on you know what you think that the most important things that it accomplishes for our economy. Yeah, um, it it accomplishes um, the the things that the border adjustment uh, address. Um, it, it addresses them um, uh, just just first on its face is if you move to the border adjustment provision, you're basically now um, moving to a tax base that ignores these international transactions and in 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 so doing you're now getting rid of any incentive for big uh, multinational corporations to start playing games with um you know where they do they park their income over in bermuda do you inflate uh your um, what are called transfer prices you know in overseas tax havens none of that matters anymore with, with under the border adjustment so you get rid of this whole inversion issue uh it's in and you do it in a really elegant way uh, so I think that's one of the, the uh, one of the major um, benefits of, of the uh, the border adjustment, and uh, it's also, as I said earlier, related to um, uh, moving to a territorial system, which all of our major major trading partners uh, have a territorial tax system. Um, it's I think part of a needed modernization of the U.S. tax code, and if you do that, you've You've got to have some way of making sure that um, you have some integrity to the to the tax base, and I think the border adjustment does that. So you don't have um, a lot of uh, perverse incentives to to move uh, money overseas, and, and the, the border adjustment also addresses that. And like I said, under the ten-year budget window, it'll uh, raise some revenue um, that uh, could help uh, with the just the legislative reform effort. So I think it's got a lot of pluses. Um, there, you know, plenty of people have talked about the minuses, um, but uh, I, I don't think, um, uh, frankly, I think the, the border adjustment starts to look an awful lot better when you look at some of the other pieces that would be under consideration in, in, a, in a real reform effort. And so what are, how do you rate the, the possibility that it gets through? I mean, is it in your 
you know, if you you have your crystal ball and you're saying this is yeah. how it's all going to play out, um, that we're going to get it in there. Is that uh, the is that the only way they actually get to corporate tax reform and get to lower tor- tax rates is by getting some of these offsets, or do you think this whole process is just going to drag on and on and on, and they they'll never agree? Well, uh, I guess let me answer your question. Let me first sort of what my, how I sort of view the landscape, which is okay. first just holistically, tax reform is always hard. Um, you know, we've only done it a handful of times in the, basically the 100 years of the modern tax code. So it's always hard. So it's yeah. always less than 50-50 proposition, right? So, you know, of course the bad is then some probability of a 50%, you know, or less than 50%. So it's 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 never good. Yeah. Um, but so, but within operating under the assumption that they're going to do tax reform, I would say that the, the, the bat, um, it becomes really viable and I think a you know, really starts to look a lot better, um, I think, the further along in the process you go. Um, right now, of course, if the president's going to put out a one-pager with basically lots of the stuff that everybody likes, or raids, saying territorial and stuff, you're not going to put base broadeners, you're not going to put border adjustment in there, because that makes people mad. And that's, you know, the the administration wasn't clearly trying to get into that kind of fight yet. But when Ways and Means is looking for money and looking for base um uh, base broadening to lower the rates, you know, you're going to go where the money is. Mm-hmm. And the border adjustment, as I said earlier, also solves a lot of other international tax problems. So that's in the the, the, the nitty-gritty of the legis, legis, uh, legislative process. When the Senate does their whatever it is that they're going to do, um, you know, they may not have a big appetite for the bat right now, but when they start putting a bill together and they need they need money and they need to solve um, some international tax problems, um, the bat starts to look... Um, looks pretty attractive. And so I think the further along we get in the process, the better its prospects. Yeah, well, I, so conceptually, I always like when people are doing things that get rid of the games that people play to, to avoid taxes. So you get, you're get you able to transfer these IPs and come back at right. zero tax. I mean, that seems philosophically as just you know somebody who's paying income taxes. It just seems like something these companies should be paying. Um, right. I mean, what are the other distortions or complications in the tax code that you think they should be working on? Is there anything uh, that the people yeah. haven't been focused on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, f- I mean, first, just to, to your point, uh, and part of the elegance of the, the border adjustment and the destination-based cash uh, cash flow tax is when you do uh, move to the the destination-based cash flow tax with the border adjustment, you're looking at domestic consumption. Those transactions are a lot easier to track than, say, you know, IP that is living in Ireland or whatever. But the b- best analogy I've so far heard is let's Let's look at you know the this Star Wars Rogue One movie, right? That was a um, a US multinational corporation that probably has IP in a tax haven, financed Chinese you know some Chinese investment funds with British actors shot in various parts of the of the world, or there's a British actor, a Mexican actor, um, and you know people from all over the world. But where does the income come from? You know who do you tax? Whereas if you're a destination based, all you got to do is figure out where the ticket was. Right? I mean that's just to me, a much more elegant way of, of, uh, of taxing something. Sure. Um, now, to, as to your other point about you know some of the other distortions, that has to, but one of the biggest ones is, is between um, debt investment, the return to debt finance investment, and the return to equity invest, uh, or equity finance investment. And um, you know, right now, depending, you know, you can see negative tax rates, essentially a tax subsidy to. Um, Debt finance investment because of the deductibility of interest and some mm-hmm. other um, some other elements in the tax code for investment. 
um, getting rid of interest deductibility would equalize that tax treatment. And that's, that's another, another fight that the blueprint has taken on. And it's one uh, I think they should, uh, I, I'm hoping will persist. Um, you, particularly if you're going to do full expensing, um, if you're going to do that, you got to get rid of the interest deductibility. We're talking with Gordon Gray of the American Action Forum, Director of Fiscal Policy there. Now, it, it, it was the, the deductibility of interest, was that in the outline, or is that something you think they have to do no, later? No, it, no, what, no. It, it was, because um, they said charitable and, well, they said mortgage interest was in mortgage there. Mortgage interest, and then, and then we're fairly vague about anything else, which, uh, like okay. I said, the, the blueprint, or excuse me, not the, the, the outline. Uh, the, the, the outline, uh, the one pager, um, didn't wasn't making policy. Yep. It was a broad statement of principles that I think was useful for at least telegraphing the need for reform, setting some very broad parameters that you know uh, within which both the House and the Senate can operate. None of what was in the plan, I don't think, rules out or is is um, can't be squared with what the blueprint is doing or what the Senate may do. Um, but clearly, they left a lot of the hard work, i.e. the, the base broadening efforts, to where the where the fights are, to uh, to the Congress, which um, at this stage is, I suppose, fair. Um, when the Ways and Means Committee produces a bill, when House members have to vote, and it you know, takes some tough votes that are going to have some perceived winners and losers, that's when you're going to need the administration to actually um, kind of suit up and, and be willing to take on a leadership role and, and, and tell, you know, some folks who are going to say, oh, this is unfair and say, well, sorry, this is for the good of the country. Your tax break is no more. Yeah. You know, another way to, to equalize that equity and debt financing, and, and I've worked with Professor Siegel now for 16 years. Sure. I remember in 2002, 2003, when they were thinking about the dividend tax cut reduction back in the day, he had been saying, and this was also when we had all these earnings scandals, people didn't know if they could trust the right. earnings. He was saying, all you have to do is make dividends tax deductible, just like you have earnings. Because we doubly tax dividends first at corporate profits, and then people pay right. the individual taxes on dividends. Bush didn't go for that. Um, they just lowered yeah. the tax rates. Why Why is that so controversial? Um, it, I, you know, in, when they were operating, you know, trying to, to put this together in 2003, I, I know that they, were, they, you know, they had bolder ambitions than I think what they were able to, to get to the Congress. You remember in the 2003 that they needed Vice President Cheney to break the tie on, the, on, on that vote to get it through. So um, I think they were limited... Um, less by policy design than sort of political yeah. constraints. Um, you know, clearly there's, there's, there are ways to do, to do sort of bigger and, and bigger tax reforms that um, kind of get at some of these distortions. I, I just don't think they quite had the room to do that in 2003. Um, but you're right, you know, that you can, you can definitely come at the, the equalization from different angles. Um, there's, there's, there's no question about it. Yeah, I mean, if you made dividend tax deductible, people paid out all their earnings as dividends. I mean, that that actually would lower, <laughs> that's another way of lowering the corporate tax in, in some it way. It is, yeah. Um, yeah. But, there's no uh, question. Um, I, you know, the, and then that gets into sort of what this, this the Senate has long had this, um, uh, this, this idea uh, by long, I mean, you know, long is, you know, the last year or so that they, that tax reform has sort of been kicking around is, you know, they've been talking about trying to do corporate integration, you know, which starts, which, you know, refocuses uh, taxation on, um, you know, on the, on the shareholder level and, and um, you know, where that, where that I think would be particularly, um, you know, sort of explicit uh, for, for folks. Um, but in, in, it's, in, in that way, it also makes sense because at the end of the day, 
you know, the corporate tax is ultimately born by shareholders, but also workers and and uh, um, uh, and sort of participants in in the uh, in the market. And so ultimately, it's people that bear bear the cost of these taxes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you think about, you know, as, as in your role as director of fiscal policy, I mean, we talked a lot about tax policy. That was the focus this week. Um, any other sides of fiscal policy that you're you're focused on? I mean, the, the infrastructure spending side, uh, anything you want to see them focus on outside of tax policy? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm still waiting to see a, a real budget uh, out of the administration. Um, and you know, I, there's still this this pesky little thing called the the debt um, that if we don't address it, will really will diminish the standard of living for future generations, no matter what it is. Um, so that's that's why I'm worried about folks talking about the just the uh, you know flashing the corporate tax the corporate tax and then sunsetting it um, and you know blowing up the deficit and just say you know passing it on to the next generation. Um, I think the administration, um, you know, I hold them to the same standard I, I did the last one, which is we have a growing debt problem. It's now on your watch. Um, the, the, the guy, um, if, if you wanted this job, now you have to do it. And that includes uh, dealing with the debt. And that includes dealing with the, the entitlement programs. And I know that uh, now President Trump um, made some promises about those in the campaign. Um, but now you got to govern, and yeah. uh, I think that means actually rolling up your sleeves and dealing with uh, uh, with our debt and, and our entitlement program. So I'd like to do that. Um, I'm happy to see that uh, we have decided not to shut the government down. That didn't used to be a high bar, but um, yeah, you haven't heard debt ceiling in a while. What's that? You haven't heard about the debt ceiling, which is which is positive. Yeah, yeah. Um, haven't haven't heard the haven't heard the, about the the debt ceiling. Thing that sounds like we're gonna get to wrestle with uh, in the fall, um, but uh, even just the basics of governing by passing a, a, a continuing resolution to keep the doors open, mm. um, at least they manage that. So you know, take I'll take what I can get right now. But you know, there's some serious challenges that I think the administration is going to need to deal with. You know, one of the, the theories, uh, I was talking with Professor Siegel last week, he was saying, you know, you know, should they even try to do revenue neutrality? Perhaps, you know, given where interest rates are, you just sort of embark on some deficit expansion. And if the 10-year just stays at two, you know, perhaps you don't need to focus on the deficit reduction. Any any feedback to that? Uh, yeah, I, I have been hearing that argument from, from folks, and um, I guess... When we had a much smaller share of debt to GDP than, you know, in, than interest risk, um, you know, wasn't nearly what it is today. But if you look at what, what uh, you know, CBO is projecting about just what, you know, small blips in uh, what interest rates will all of a sudden do to the budget, because we have such a large debt portfolio that even just a little change in, in the interest rate um, can ratchet up the net interest cost. Um, dramatically and um, I just think that that's uh, it's poor risk management to um, keep entertaining that and and not to do something proactively to to reduce that risk and the other thing is the longer you wait particularly on on the entitlement programs the harder it gets the demography yeah until you have a crisis nobody wants to adjust social security and so you just the sooner you deal with it not only to sort of better numerically but in terms of like good government and telling people, giving people the ability to plan and not waiting till the last minute and having to jack tax rates up 
dramatically, cut benefits. I mean, because right now, uh, in about 15 years or so, Social Security is expected, um, is automatically going to have a 25% cut in benefits. Yeah. It's built in. Uh, because it, it the trust fund runs out, benefit payments have to equal uh, income after the trust fund uh, runs out. It, they have to cash those Social Security, and that translates into a across-the-board cut to beneficiaries. That's the plan right now um, by law. That's just how it de- the default scenario. Um, that's a lousy way to run a pension plan, and I think we need to do better by uh, future retirees. Yeah, they need a they need some other kind of smoothing instead of just the the, the people the unlucky people at that time. Um, you know the yeah. counterpoint on the debt to GDP, and we're in, unfortunately I'm in like my final countdown here. You know the counterpoint on the huge debt to GDP is Japan, which has the highest debt to GDP and zero interest rates on the ten year, and the Bank of Japan owns forty percent of all the bonds in Japan, and they keep buying more. Uh, and so maybe you know that's the future for the rest of us in the developed world that we have aging societies that now you expect massive inflation, which they also don't have massive inflation. So. Uh, it's going to be interesting how all these debt demographics, taxes, policy plays out, and we're we're glad to have connected here, Gordon. Thank you so much for coming on our program. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Any any closing closing thoughts? Just uh, final twenty seconds. Yeah, I would I would I would just say um, in terms of, of the tax debate, um, obviously I think uh, what the president put out this week probably disappointed a lot of us, but it's it's important because it. Uh, keeps the process moving, and that's what's important right now. Um, the House uh, usually goes first in this. What the president put out doesn't uh, get in the way of that. It encourages broadly the, the process so that the House can move, then the Senate can move, and then I think hopefully we'll see some meaningful improvements in the tax code, which uh, awesome. I think our economy needs right now. Thanks, Gordon, and thanks to our producer, Patty McMahon, sound engineer Daniel Bruno. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.